Um, well, hey, we are going to jump into our message. Hopefully you received some message notes um, when you came in. Um, but as we were saying, this is Thanksgiving week, which means next Sunday is the first Sunday of Advent and then Christmas, I said it again, is going to be just right around um, the corner. And so I'm excited about that. I hope that you are too. I'm always curious to ask people, are you a Thanksgiving person or are you a, a Christmas person? If you had to decide on one and you could only choose one, are you team Thanksgiving or are you team Christmas? I actually saw a poll not that long ago, kind of a national survey, and I was surprised to see that the majority of Americans actually chose Thanksgiving as their favorite holiday over Christmas. I thought that just doesn't seem true. And so um, I thought we need to take a scientific poll right here today. And so everybody's got to vote. You can only choose one. How many of you would say, if I had to choose one, I am team Thanksgiving? Let's see your Thanksgiving hands up there. All right. Good, good. All right. How many are, I'm all about Christmas? Yeah. You guys like the presents. I know you guys like the presents. That's cool. All right. All right, a little less scientific here. Uh, what do you love about the holiday season? What is it? Um, I mean, if you could just put it in a word and you can just shout it out. What is your favorite thing about the holidays? What is it? Family. Family, Family everybody says it first. Good, what else? The food, what? Presents. Presents, a girl, I'm with you. Yeah, what else? Jesus. Oh, yeah, Jesus. I, I, knew, I meant to say Jesus first, but. Okay, what else? Music. I had a few people say music. Good. Anything else? Lights. The lights. Absolutely. I'll be hanging mine this week uh, before uh, even Thanksgiving gets here. It's just the way that I am. So, well, here's the deal. I love all of those things, um, uh, but there is something else that the holidays bring out in us. And it's not necessarily something that you will find on anybody's list of favorite things, but it may be something that you are going to face this very week. Because the reality is sometimes the holidays bring out family conflict, family conflict. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Because while this is, uh, for many of us, the hap happiest time of the year, it also can be the most dysfunctional time of the year and the most argumentative time of the year, the most petty time of the year. For some, it's the most lonely or, or sad or traumatic time of the year. Because those uh, kind of intense family situations sometimes have a way of bringing out the worst in us and bringing up old behaviors and even addictions and ways of dealing with people and all sorts of things. And so uh, for the last several weeks, we have been in this series um, called This Is Us. And um, I got to tell you, I saw this uh, survey, actually, or this, this article that listed the top seven issues that raise family conflict. So I want to just help you with your Thanksgiving meals or something like that. So these are the top seven things that cause family conflict. Are you ready for these? Number seven is this, relatives who bring up old arguments or past mistakes, all right? So don't do that. That'd be not a good thing to do. Uh, number six, conflicts over where to spend time during the holidays. Right? Anybody face that? You guys, everybody's got that figured out? Uh, number five, relatives who put pressure on others about the future. When are you kids going to get married anyways? <laughs> and how about kids? You going to have kids sometime soon? Uh, number four, disagreements about how children should behave or be disciplined. This is a good one. I know um, that I used to just be an amazing parent. I knew everything about kids um, before I had my own. And so... <laughs> 
don't do that. Uh, number three, arguments about how much to spend on gifts can sometimes raise tension. Uh, number two, relatives who gossip or blame others for their problems uh, can create a lot of strife. And anybody guess what the number one is? Debates about politics and religion. So a little something to think about as you head into uh, the holidays. So, But anyways, I was saying that we are in this series uh, called This Is Us. Just kind of a short little series uh, for three weeks heading into the holidays all about uh, marriage and family. And we've been talking about God's design. So we talked in the first week about God's design for marriage. And we said that God's design is a lifetime covenant. And we called that message moving from me to we. And then we said what God joins together, this lifetime covenant that God brings together, what God brings together, we should not let anybody separate. And and so that was the first week. And then last week, Steve did a great job uh, talking to parents and grandparents and and, uh, people involved in kids' lives by talking about uh, what it means to be engaged and intentional with our kids. And that message was called From We to Us. Today we want to talk about what do we do when things don't go the way that we planned. And we're going to talk about from us to chaos, from us to chaos. Because the reality is, as a church, we are always going to hold up God's design, perfect and good design for for family, right? We unapologetically say God's got just a beautiful picture of the way the family should function and that Christian families should stand out as different in our culture. So we're never going to shy away from that. We're always going to hold that up as we've done these last couple weeks. But the reality is so often we look at the way things go and we say, it's just not going the way that I I planned. And so how do we move back towards that design even when things are difficult, even when things don't go the way we plan? So to help us answer this question today, I want us to do a little kind of a Bible overview of a very significant time in the Old Testament history. And what I want us to do to get us started is I want us to consider a a kind of a period of of, uh, Israel's history with not a single family, but a group of families um, that make up God's people from the days of Joseph at the end of the book of Genesis, all the way to uh, the life of Joshua, um, who becomes the leader at the beginning of the book of Joshua. And so in those years between uh, uh, Joseph on one side and Joshua on the other side, really what you have is 440 years of dysfunction and slavery and wandering and difficulty. And and so as you can see, you could even call this the model of a family gone bad. Sometimes these are things that they did not even bring upon themselves. They were things that were put on them. As I said, this is not just one family, but a group of families that make up God's people. And so what characterized those 440 years of dysfunction and slavery and wandering? And the first thing is this. I just want to kind of talk through this, is that they lost their positive family heritage. And here's what I mean by that. At the end of the book of Genesis, you have Joseph takes the people and they begin to live down in, in Egypt. They're outside of the promised land, but they're down in Egypt. And Joseph got there because his brothers sold him into slavery. And there were all kinds of people working against uh, Joseph, all kinds of problems that he faced. And yet still, God was at work in this situation. And so there's this amazing thing that when you come to the end of Joseph's life, He is actually second in command over all of Egypt. That's huge. This Hebrew guy is second in command over all of Egypt. And and they're respected and appreciated because of Joseph's influence. 
Then you turn the page, you come to the very beginning of the book of Exodus, and you read that a new king came of Egypt that didn't know anything about Joseph. And so the influence and the heritage started to fade away for the Hebrew people there. In fact, when you think about their time in Egypt, what do you mostly think about? It was a time when they were slaves. And in that time of slavery, they lost their dignity and they lost their pride. Again, this was something that was not necessarily their fault. They were under the oppression of their, you know, Egyptian, uh, Egyptian slave owners. And yet still we talk today about things that, uh, that, that kind of uh, can oppress and hold us down, whether it's behaviors or addictions or patterns of behavior. We talk about those as almost things that can feel like slavery. We say that we're a, a slave to sin. Well, once they were slaves, a number of different things happened, including the breakdown of traditional family roles. I was thinking specifically about Moses, because if you remember Moses' story, uh, the Pharaoh is killing the Hebrew boys at the time that Moses is born, killing all of them. And so his mom puts him in a basket and floats him down the river, and God is miraculously with Moses. And yet when they draw him out of, out of the river, he doesn't go home to live with his dad. He goes to live uh, in the Pharaoh's household. And so he is raised essentially without his father. Now what's fascinating to me, has always been fascinating, is here's this guy Moses who wrote down some of the strongest teaching about families, especially in all of the Old Testament, and he was from a broken home. He was from a place where he wasn't raised by his own uh, father. But as the breakdown of family starts to happen, uh, one of the things that you often see characterized when that happens is that families begin to be characterized by all sorts of negative things, including anger and violence. And you remember the story of Moses. He, he loses his temper and in anger actually kills the Egyptian slave owner. And, and Moses has to run away and lives in a, a different land for uh, about 40 years. <coughs> Finally, uh, the people are calling out out and God hears their prayers and says, I'm going to deliver you. And so he calls Moses back and they begin, Moses begins to do all these miracles. Kind of the, the highlight of Moses's miracles is he leads the people out of Egypt and all they have to do is get across the Red Sea and with the Egyptian army behind them, the Red Sea in front of them, Moses lifts up his staff. And remember what happens, the Red Sea is parted and they walk across on dry land. And we always read that story and we think, if I saw that, I would always believe and yet what we see characterized of the, the God's people in this time is what I call a fickle faith, right? Because they believe for a time and then they just kind of drift away and they see these miracles and then, you know, almost immediately we see that they fall away. In fact, how bad did it get? Uh, they turned what could have been an 11-day journey into 40 years of wandering in the desert. Because God brings him out of Egypt and he says, I'm ready to take you guys home. I'm going to take you to the place that I designed for you, a good place for you. It's called the promised land. It's full of milk and honey. And, and the Bible tells us that once they came out of Egypt, it was an 11-day walk, which is a long walk in the desert. But from there into the promised land, 11 days. You remember how long it took them to actually get there? 40 years. That, my friends, is family dysfunction, right? I mean, I've been on some, I've gotten lost a few times, but uh, they are really wandering. In fact, when you read about that period, it just seems almost like a comedy of errors. Their family begins to be characterized by things like fighting and jealousy and, and you know, backbiting against other people. 
While they're out there, uh, they, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he gets the law, including the Ten Commandments. But right away we see that their family is characterized by ignoring even God's clearest laws, like idolatry. And there's this wild party uh, with the golden calf. We also see that there's just like this constant complaining and focus on the negatives. They're out there wandering and it's always like, I don't like the food and you know, you brought us out here to die and God, it's your fault and Moses, it's your fault. And they're always pointing the finger, always blaming someone else because that's what happens when this family uh, pattern begins to, to spin. And so they're blaming others and they're blaming God for their problems. Uh, but then it just kind of continues to what you would call even a low self-esteem that kind of takes over this family. And it becomes their identity. How do we know this? They finally get close enough to the promised land to send in some spies. And they say, we go in and check out this land and see if we can go in and take it. And they go in and ten, at least 10 of the 12 spies come back and they say, oh, no way, we're too small. We're too little, they're too big, they're too great, we could never do this. So they have kind of just this defeatist mentality where they're just stuck in their dysfunction and stuck in this low self-esteem and they're controlled by fear and doubt until ultimately what happens is they settle, they end up settling for the hardship of the wilderness instead of the goodness of the promised land. So they're so overwhelmed by all of these things that though God says, I've got something better for your family, it's right over there, it's an 11-day walk, go and get it, they end up wandering and spending this time in the wilderness. And that kind of describes 440 years of family history for God's people there during this time. And I know I'm being kind of hard on them, but if you think about, th th about it, those and many more things describe God's family for this long season. And what I want you to do on your notes is just look at those things. And does any of those sound familiar to you? Can you identify any of those things maybe in your family? Because what we see, uh, a lot of those things still describe the trauma and the problem that plagues so many of our modern families. And we say, you know what, I want to change. I want to break free from these things. I want to live differently. And yet, like the Israelites, we find ourselves kind of just falling back into old behaviors, old patterns, old ways of relating to one another. And suddenly, this family that God said is so good and is my design, suddenly, when we're honest, it feels a little more like slavery and wandering in the wilderness than we would even care to admit. And so what do we do about that? What do we do with that kind of situation? Um, and so that's why I say we want to talk today about some practical things when it comes to dealing with conflict and dysfunction in the family. And so with that kind of framework in our mind, I want us to look at what's going to be three lessons on how to deal with family conflict and dysfunction. And these are lessons primarily from Joshua's life, but as, as well as from other people, because we see that Joshua is the one who in large part can be someone who breaks that cycle um, for his family and for the people of Israel. And so the first lesson is this, you want to grab your notes and write this down, is I don't get to choose my family, right? I don't get to choose my family situation, but I do get to choose how I respond. And this is true with family, but it's true with anything in life. I can't always control the things that are coming at me, but what I can control is how I respond to those 
things, right? So the truth is God put you and God put me in our families and, and your family may be broken through years of, of bad choices, through all sorts of problems. It may be difficult. You may wish it was something different. But again, we don't get to choose our, our situation. We choose how we can respond. So I love the story of Joshua in this case because I mentioned that they, they send the spies in to check out the land. And they send in 12 spies and 10 of them come back with this kind of negative report. There's no way we can do it. We're too small. They're too big. Um, we shouldn't go in. But two people come back and they say, with God on our side, we can do it. We can go in and take this promised land that God has for us. And Joshua was, of course, one of those two. Joshua and Caleb come back with this great report. But eventually, the louder voices of the ten went out. And what happens in the rest of the story is for the next 40 years, they end up stuck there in the wilderness. And Joshua, even though it wasn't his fault, Joshua said we could do it. But it was his family holding him back, right? In fact, everybody dies in that time. And so Joshua endures all these things. And in my mind, if there's anybody who could complain about his family and point the finger at someone else, it would have been Joshua. And yet what I want you to see is when God calls Joshua to be the leader of the people, that, that, that God doesn't say, Joshua, you know, you've been carrying around these people forever. It's everybody else's fault. You can blame them for the hardship you faced. No, God gives instructions to Joshua that are specifically for him. He says, Joshua, if you want to break the cycle of dysfunction, here's what you do. And I'm going to read for you from Joshua chapter 1, uh, verses 7 through uh, 9. And if you want to turn there, it's also up on the screens there. But God speaks to Joshua and he says this. He says, Joshua, be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the law my servant Moses gave to you. Do not turn to the right or to the left that you may be successful wherever you go. Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Joshua, meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will have, be prosperous and successful. Have I not commanded you, Joshua, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And what I want us to notice is that God's instructions to Joshua are really a message of personal responsibility. He says, Joshua, it's not your job to point your finger at everybody else. Joshua, I'm commanding you. These are the things for you. It's a message of personal responsibility. Now, I know as we've been talking about family for these last couple weeks, uh, that topic has something in us that wants us to always point the finger at the other person, right? When we're, the, the message is on husbands and wives, you want to elbow your wife, or you know when it's on kids, you want to do this kind of thing. In fact, I remember a few years ago, um, I did a message that was, uh, I was on marriage, and after the service, no joke, I had separately come to me the husband and the wife, and both of them said this, I'm so glad my spouse was here to hear that message today. <laughs> And I thought, you are missing the point. Um, but there's something in us that wants to do that. But look at what Galatians 6 says. Galatians 6 says, for we are each responsible for what? For our own conduct. I'm responsible for me. I'm responsible for me. You know, this is true when you face conflict in any area, but especially in your marriage. In fact, I heard a counselor uh, tell uh, uh, that he had a kind of a way that, that with real 
strong accuracy. He could, could tell kind of the success that a couple would have of staying together. If a couple came to them, uh, came to him for, uh, and they were struggling and looking for um, counsel, he said, I could tell with, you know, almost on that first session, you know, the, the chances of them saving their marriage. And, and I'd do it with one exercise. And he said, this is what I would do. I'd give them both a, a piece of paper. And I'd say, I want you to think about the problems that you're here to see me for. And I want you to write down on this piece of paper the percentage of responsibility that you bear for these problems, right? And then they would both, you know, write down their words there, and then they are right there in their number. They'd give it to him. He'd take those, average them together, and he said that would be, you know, about their chance. And so if they were saying, well, it's mostly their fault. I'm responsible for 15, maybe 20 percent. Well, that was your chances of success. Even if you said it's 50 percent, that could be the chances of your success. Now, I understand that that's not scientific and it's not necessarily 100% accurate, but the truth that he's getting at makes a lot of sense because I can't change them. I can only change me. And if I spend all of my time and all of my energy pointing that finger, trying to change them, one of the things that happens is I short-circuit the work that God wants to do in healing me and in turn healing, we're talking about family relationships, but any kind of relationships. There's a book um, that's called Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me. Mistakes Were Made, But Not By Me, which is a great title. Um, and the author, uh, Carol Tarvis, says this. He says, the vast majority of couples who drift apart do so slowly over time in a snowballing pattern of blame and self-justification. Each partner focuses on what the other is doing wrong while justifying his or her own preferences, attitudes, and ways of doing things. From our standpoint, she writes, therefore, misunderstandings, conflicts, personality differences, and even angry quarrels are not the assassins of love. So then what is the assassin of love? She says self-justification is the assassin of love. And those are powerful words because in our fallen sinful nature is this incredible ability to blame someone else and to justify ourselves. And here's the thing, I stand up here and I give this message today and I get it. I, I get that your marriage may be full of conflict and deep hurt and betrayal. Your situation with your ex or your situation with your kids or your parents or whatever it may be may feel hopeless. But here's what I, I can tell you. You can't change your situation, but you can be responsible for yourself. There's a, a Christian lawyer who tells a story about this man who, who comes to her and says, I'm ready for a divorce. I want to get a divorce. She says, uh, he says, um, uh, my wife has just been, you know, uh, mistreating me for years. And the reality is I've probably been that way to her too. But, um, you know, it's been terrible. And so I'm ready to be done with this. And not only do I want a divorce, but I want to stick it to her. I want to, you know, I want to really let her have it in this thing. And so the lawyer says, well, you know, I've seen this enough to know that if, if you go at it like that, it's not really going to work because you'll get your divorce, but she's going to almost be happy that you're gone. You know, it's going to be a relief for her. So here's what we could do if you really want to get her. Let's drop the divorce papers, but let's date them for six months from now. And then here's what I think you should do. I think you should go back home and just quietly start to be the best husband that you can be and start to, you know, patiently love her and show kindness to her and listen and, and, and be attentive to and meet her needs and treat her the way that you want to be treated and do that for six months and then here's what we'll do. Once you've kind of built her up, I'll get you those divorce papers and then we'll just tear it out from under her and it will just, she'll be shocked and so uh, disappointed by that. 
And the guy thinks, yes, that's what I have in mind. That's what I was shooting for. So he goes back, and you can kind of guess where the story goes. He goes back, and he begins to live that way, and he begins to pay attention and to treat her with love and to respect her and honor her and do those things. And six months later, the lawyer calls and says, hey, I've got those divorce papers. And what does he say? I don't need them anymore. He said, you can't believe it. My wife and I have fallen in love again. And you guys, I tell that story, and I get that it is simplistic, I get that it is probably not nuanced enough for your situation. It doesn't take into the pain of your situation. But here's what else I would say. I dare you to try it. I dare you to try it. If you're in that situation and you're not sure what you can do, start with me. To quote the great Michael Jackson, you got to start with the man in the mirror. And uh, so there you go. Point number one, it starts with me. Second lesson um, uh, from Scripture is uh, that, that Scripture gives us is conflict and dysfunction. When it comes to that, I can choose to respond in a Christ-like way. So I can choose my response, and specifically, I can respond to conflict in a Christ-like way. You know, I don't know if you've ever noticed, but so much of the ministry of Jesus is him dealing with conflict. He's in conflict with people all kinds of, of times. And Jesus doesn't necessarily shy away or bury his head from, from the conflict. So how does Jesus respond? I think one of the great descriptions of that is what Paul writes later on when he says that you speak the truth in love. You don't have to shy away. You can speak the truth. But how do you do it? You can do it in love. The problem is none of us are that good at it. In fact, I uh, saw a list of different ways that we tend to respond uh, to conflict. And so here's just kind of a partial list of the way people tend to deal with conflict. See if you can find yourself on this list. The first one is this. There are the peacemakers among us. Uh, this would be me right here. Uh, the peacemakers, um, for them, the most important thing is harmony. The most important thing is just that everybody would get along with each other. Um, and Jesus says, you know, that's great. Blessed are the peacemakers. That is a, a really good thing. Unless it means that you're avoiding dealing with any real issues. And so some of you are peacemakers, and I'm not going to make you raise your hands. Uh, some of you are going to be in that sulker or that powder category. There's that conflict, and you just withdraw into yourself and feel overwhelmed. And they say, you know, they say, well, what's the matter? And I don't know. And you just kind of hide in the corner. There's the, the sulker. The close cousin to that is the stuffer. This is the person who has conflict, and they just stuff it down, and they don't deal with it. And so you say, well, what's the matter? And you say, I'm fine. I said, I'm fine. I said, I'm fine. Right? That's the stuffer. In fact, it often leads to the next one, which is the exploder. You know, the one who always is just one conflict away from pitching a fit and yelling and screaming. Um, and then the last one that I have written down here is the litigator. Any litigators out there? You think every conflict is a court case, right? Every battle, you know, is something where you need to put together evidence and present this strong argument, and you've got to win the case. Except I don't know if you've noticed this in your family, that sometimes you can win the argument and lose the relationship. And so, you know, there's all kinds of negative ways of dealing with conflict. I want to give us some positive ones, uh, Christ-like ways that we see, both from the life of Jesus as well as uh, just from Scripture in general. So the first one is this, is Christ-like conflict confrontation overlooks a lot. It overlooks a lot. I don't know if you thought that that would be the first one. But this is the, the, the close cousin to what Steve talked about last week when he talked about uh, choosing your battles. And I thought that was so wise. And he said, you know, you don't have to die 
on every hill. You've got to choose those battles. Proverbs 19 says it like this, and I love this scripture. It says, sensible people control their temper. They earn respect by what? Overlooking wrongs. Right? You can actually earn respect and honor by overlooking <clears throat> wrongs. Proverbs 12, uh, 16 says this, a fool is quick-tempered, but a wise person stays calm even when insulted, right? You see, like I said, not every problem needs to be World War III. Scripture actually says that a sign of maturity and a sign of wisdom is to be able to overlook those things, sometimes even when we're insulted. And we see Christ do that. Christ-like confrontation has the ability to overlook things. And that's, that's, that's a great place to start. The second thing we see is that Christ-like conflict is going to be gentle. It's going to be gentle. Now, I confess, when you look at the life of Jesus, there's times where he's actually quite strong, especially with the religious leaders and the hypocrites and that kind of thing. But when you look at his interaction, especially with kind of regular people, what you see is, is the gentleness in Christ, um, which is so good. And we know that gentleness is actually a fruit of God's Spirit. When God's Spirit is at work in our life, one of the things that it will bear is gentleness. I, I love the scripture from Galatians chapter 6. It says this, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person. So in other words, it's okay to deal with that conflict. It's okay to have that conversation. But how do you do it? You do it gently. You should restore them gently. Third thing we see is that Christ-like confrontation listens far more than it speaks. It listens far more than it speaks. This is a hard one to get. Maybe a good one to put into practice this uh, Thanksgiving. But maybe you're familiar with the scripture. James 1 says this, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Right? Quick to listen, slow to speak. Uh, the Proverbs say it like this. To answer before listening is folly and sh shame. Excuse me. And a lot of times, that what we, that's what we do. We're so, you know, eager to have our answer, to get our point across, that before we even listen, um, we, we want to speak. In fact, I think one of the things that can bring great restoration to a hurting family is to have someone be committed to becoming a servant listener. So I'm going to take the, the nature of Christ, which is the nature of a servant, even when I listen, which means that I'm going to work hard to understand their position, to understand where they're coming from, not just so that I can answer it or argue it, so that I can feel it, so that I can understand it, so that I can truly listen to it. Because if I'm just answering before I'm even paying attention, it's folly and shame, the scripture says. Fourth Christ-like way to confront, uh, to deal with confrontation and conflict is this. Uh, it has the good of the other person in mind. Proverbs 15 says, gentle words are like a tree of life. Deceitful tongue, but a deceitful tongue uh, crushes the spirit. We want our words to, to bring life. Uh, that word gentle there is actually the same Hebrew word as healing or soothing. There are words that you can give that will bring healing and soothing to a person. But one of the things that has to start with is, do I have their best in mind? Again, my goal is not to win. My goal is to even have them win, right? Put them first. Uh, a Christ-like confrontation, last of all, is quick to forgive. Quick to forgive. You know, as followers of Jesus, we should be able to lead the way in this because we've been forgiven so much. And the scriptures say things like this, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ God forgave you. Well, that's a, a quick list, and I went over those way too fast. We could have easily spent a whole message on, on those things and more. Um, but you may say, hey, that, that all sounds great in theory. 
This is easy as a, you know, to hear it or give it as a sermon, but you don't know what I'm dealing with. You don't know the chaos of the, the blended family that we're trying to figure out and, and work things out. And you don't know the pain of, of an unfaithful or loveless marriage. You don't know all kinds of other uh, family issues, right? How in the world can I do these things facing the situation that I'm facing? And I want to give you an answer that is, is simple. Now, I get it is not an easy answer. This is not an easy thing to do, but it is a simple thing to do or it is a simple answer to, to how to deal with these things, and that is you can only do these things with God leading you and with God, because it's only with God's help can we choose to be the one that breaks the cycle of dysfunction. Some of us here today are going to be the ones that maybe break that chain that has been going on for years and years. You know, one of my favorite descriptions of God's character um, comes in the Old Testament, and uh, you see it in a number of different places, described in kind of different ways, but the first place you see it is actually in the commandments that God gives there on Mount Sinai. So it's the time when they were out wandering in the wilderness, and God speaks the commandments to them, and he describes himself uh, by saying this about himself. He says, I, the Lord your God, in Exodus 20, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. And I read that, what that says is this problem of broken families is real. The sin of families has an impact, right? We feel that. We feel that those things, those behaviors, those, those addictions tend to get passed on from one generation to the next. Now, when he says, I punished into the third and fourth generation, I don't think that we're to take that literal. It's not like, you know, you're being punished because of your great-grandma's sins or, or, you know, punished for your parents' sin. Jesus actually clears this up when they bring the man who's blind to Jesus and they say, whose sins is he being punished for? Is it his parents or, or his? And Jesus says, no, that's not what it's about. And so we're not meant to take that third or fourth generation thing um, so literally, but what it does mean is that those habits and those sinful behaviors have a way of perpetuating from one generation to the next to the next, right? And it feels like God's punishment, and it feels like this thing that we can't break out of. But notice what else God says. He says, but I show love to a thousand generations of those who love and keep my commands. In other words, yes, there is consequence, but I am the God who breaks those cycles. I am the God who can lead you out of the wandering and the slavery and into the promised land, and you can be the one who breaks that chain. You can be the one who starts a thousand generations coming behind you of people that love and follow and experience God's blessing. And so kind of for the so what here, let me just kind of take us back to the life of Joshua. Because they've been wandering in the desert now, 400 years of slavery, 40 years in the desert. Can you imagine the weight of family dysfunction that this guy is leading? Because now he's going to be the leader of this group that's just been doing it wrong for all these years. But God finally brings them and they come right to the edge of the Jordan River. So behind them is the desert and on the other side of the river is the promised land and they can all look and they can see into it and they can see that it's good and they believe that that's what God had designed for them but now all they have to do is get across the river and get into it and so they come to the river and they think well we don't know how to get across the river we might as well just 
you know, head back and spend another six months, another two years, another 40 years wandering in the wilderness. And Joshua says, no. God's told me that I'm going to be strong and courageous. I'm not going to let the book of the law depart from, from my life. And so Joshua brings them there. And remember, when God parted the Red Sea with Moses, what does he do? It says Moses holds up the staff and then the water parts and they walk through on the dry land. And that is miraculous. They bring Joshua and the people to the edge of the, the, the river. And God says, I'm going to do it differently this time. He says, Joshua, I want you to put the priests out front and when they step into the river, then I will part the water and they'll be able to go across. God says, I'm going to do a miracle, but I'm going to wait for you to take that step of faith. And can you imagine as they stood there, right, ready to, to take that step, how fearful they were. And yet they have the courage and they take the step. And the Bible says it like this, God piled up the water on both sides and they walked through on dry land and they came to the land, the good land that God had had for them for generations. And with God's help, they went and they began to live in that land. Now here's the thing, it doesn't mean that immediately everything was easy. They still faced all kinds of problems. They still had uh, battles ahead. Yet when they kept their eyes on God and their trust in him, he allowed them to conquer and to live in that land. And the reality is, so many of us, maybe it's in the area of family, maybe it's in all kinds of different areas, have been living in the wilderness when God's got the promised land for us. And he says, I'll pull the waters, I'll do that for you, and he's waiting for us to take that step. And you can be the one, you can be the one that breaks that cycle for a thousand generations, and God is rooting for you. And God's there for you. And God strengthens us and carries us. And God knows your hurts. And God knows your mistakes. And God knows why things have fallen apart in the past. And he says, that stuff is behind us. Let's go forward. And so then you get to the end of Joshua's life. And this is what he famously says. He's coming to the end of his days. And he gathers them together. And he says this. So you guys, you can choose today who you are going to serve. Whether you're going to serve the gods of the ancestors that they served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites, the ones that were behind us there in whose land you were living. He says, but as for me and my household, what are we going to do? We will serve the Lord. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much um, that you are a God of restoration. And deep in your character is this idea, Lord, that you bless people. Yes, there are consequences to our dysfunction and to our sin, but there's also freedom and hope in you. And so I pray for myself and for my brothers and sisters gathered here today as we think about maybe specific, <laughs> specific situations or just kind of this general uh, kind of wandering that we've been in. Father, I pray that you would allow us to take that step into your goodness and trust you to see you part the waters that we can walk through and inhabit the good land that you have for us. Father, give us the wisdom. Give us the strength. Be strong and courageous. Have I not commanded you? Don't let the book of the law depart from you. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Father, we commit it to you knowing that the battle is yours. In Jesus' name.